Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, Christopher Nolan has a new studio. The Eyes of Tammy Faye drops this week, and we also have director Michael Showalter on to talk about the film. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Blunders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 182 of Real Blend, a podcast that's really been a deep fake all along on this week's show. Christopher Nolan lands a new studio. So long, Warner Brothers, and hello, Universal. The Eyes of Tammy Faye is going to be dropping, and we're going to have director uh, Michael Showalter, who worked on The Big Sick, but also directed The Eyes of Tammy Faye, as this week's guest on The Real Blend Show, which is co-hosted each and every week by Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hi, Kev. Sean, Jake, Gabriel. Good to see you guys. Good to have you Gabriel back, my got, friend. Gabe got it. Gabe uh, got it. And Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. Sean, you have a, a second place glow about you, sir. We have the same record, Jake. That's it. That's all. I, I didn't say that in a, in a as a slight. I meant it as a, like a you and I are atop our fantasy league, sir. Jake and I are in the same fantasy football league, and we both dominated. We might, but we might have the two best squads in the. Uh, Give me a high five. In the entire division. There we go. High five. Yeah. Until we play yeah. each other. Um, housekeeping. Oh, could you? Oh. It's the show be, that week. I looked it up. I think it's like week seven, so we have some time. But oh, the show that bet. week. Yeah, we got to put a good bet down on that one. Um, <gasps> oh. Think about it. Think about it. If you're watching us on YouTube, hello. Nice to see you guys. Uh, make sure you go down, hit subscribe, turn on your notifications. We post Can't all of our full related. shows here, and we also have video interviews with the people who are nice enough to stop by. Uh, if you want to join us and you have not been over to that page, it's youtube.com backslash Podcast. Of course, we're available all the different places where you get your audio podcast needs met. Have you signed up yet for Real Blend Premium? And if you haven't, why the heck not? Because every week you get... Uh, a Monday show, an additional show from us with some fun games that are usually involved in it. You get a newsletter written by me every other week uh, and an ad-free um, experience. All right, to get the premium episode, go to cinemablend.com backslash realblendpremium. Um, I think it's worth signing up for. It's it's usually entertaining. Um, like this show, it's usually entertaining. Uh, Kev, we're going to do the weekly poll. 
because this is a movie that um has well, I don't know. It's it's dropped a little bit of a bomb in the middle of the Roblin text thread. Right. Uh, because of our reactions to it. This is James Wan's film, Malignant, which came out last week. And uh, it was on HBO Max, and it's in theaters, and it has um, some complicated plot twists, which we are not going to get into right here. But I wanted to... Or actually, Gabe put this one together, and he said, What did you think of Malignant? Kev, I want you to answer what you think our audience said, and then I want to hear from you. Uh, okay. We gave them the option of... James Wan's best, a good horror flick, wasn't for me, or too scared to press play. Mm. Where do you think the people went? I'm going to guess our audience went with uh, a good horror flick. Okay. Uh, Close, wasn't for me, got 42%. Mm. And a a good horror flick got 32%. Okay. So close. Yeah, pretty close. 13% went with James Wan's best. And that's interesting. (laughs) That's interesting. I don't know if I'd go that route, um, but Kev, take it away. What did you think of uh, Malignant? And we're going to keep it spoiler free. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Um, at the end of the day, I think the camera work in this sh- in this movie is absolutely beautiful. And like one of the things that James Wan does brilliantly, and you can see this in The Conjuring, and you can see this obviously in a lot of his films, primarily in The Conjuring, is just the way he moves his camera. Um, there's a way he shoots houses that that is like so wan like in terms of the way he mm-hmm. films that. Um, but I loved not knowing where this movie was going. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's kind of like the beauty of what this film did for me was, I mean, I'm telling you right now that third act, which again, and then we were discussing this before the show. It's not a spoiler to say the third act is crazy. That's kind of been like the big selling point of this movie is that don't spoil it for anybody. Don't say what it is. We're not going to say mm-hmm. what it is, but it's it's an incredible incredible uh, third act like and and the and it's it's insane so it is insane and one of the things that i um find so intriguing about it is that we i was a little bit giving james wan a hard time going into it with the marketing of like if you don't show it to people or you you know hold the embargo the night before people become really sophisticated with the fact that that might mean it's really bad um but that's not the case with this and i do think that some people who are judging it as like um, like over the top and corny, uh, I think they're they're missing the fact that he did all of that it's on purpose. Purposeful, yes. Like uh, yeah, what, what that's what I think is so masterful to, about it. I agree with you. Like there's a there's a camp element to this film that is designed, I believe, on purpose. Like as I was watching the first two acts of this movie, every single decision that came off, quote unquote, like campy or cheesy. I felt was a director choice. I didn't feel that it was like bad acting or like bad script writing. I I genuinely thought everything was designed in a way for you to be taken on a different ride in terms of horror. And like, I had never seen a film like this before in terms of the horror genre. And that's why I use the upgrade example that, because Lee Winnell, for people who aren't aware, Lee Winnell and James Wan, they came up together, they did Saw together. And then Lee Winnell went on to do amazing films like The Invisible Man. Um, but in this particular instance, I've never seen horror used in this particular way. And it's, it's so incredibly smart and unique and fun. And I'm glad it wasn't ruined for anybody. And that's kind of why we're not ruining it for people because it's genuinely surprising, shocking, and just downright awesome. It's an awesome horror film. It's very well done. I think he sets the tone of it too in the opening five minutes. Hundred percent. Like, yeah. Like that scene is so off the charts, mm-hmm. Gonzo and funny. Mm-hmm. That it I almost was like, feels like like Sam Raimi doing Evil Dead. Yes. But Malignant is just on a different scale. It's it, it, it's 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 just masterful in terms of the way he works that camera. The, it, Juan well, you know what it is? is so it good. Feels, 
it feels a little bit like you you would call it like a student film, yeah, you know, or yeah, like yeah. a first time yeah. filmmaker trying everything. But it's made by someone who is a master at the, sure, at the field. I sure, agree with you hundred <laughs> there, percent. There's a yeah, there's a master a class sequence to where it. someone's yeah. escaping a, a a building and is leaving out, out the a fire exit. Where mm. you just go like, okay, we can I can call this movie a B movie all day long. I was watching it and thinking, oh, this is him doing like a wacky B movie. But then there are some sequences, uh, some tracking shots, some exterior shots where you just go like. This ain't shot like a B movie. Like it might, it might meant to be written like a B movie. It might made to be felt like a B movie, but it's made like an A movie, and it's made by a director who knows how to make an A movie. That being said, yeah, this is I'm the conversation. Sh- go ahead. Go. I'm, I'm not sure it's actually a good. Like, look, oh, I, I had a blast. Is. I had a ton of fun when the third act hit, and I realized where we were at, I just threw my arms up in the air and went, cool, let's do this. Let's let's go fucking nuts. Let's, yeah. You're like, you want to get nuts? Let's go nuts. I'm not sure it's particularly a good movie. Though. Like, and here's, here's, here's what sort of bums me out about it. Like, had fun. Super glad I watched it. Really cool. Not sure, like, I'd pop it on again. Like, when, when you know, I do I do horror. Re- See, mm-hmm. I, of all of his movies, like, I've, I've, I've watched... His, his first conjuring a thousand times i would turn on saw a thousand times i even like i have insidious on my list of like movies i want to rewatch in october because i do a different horror movie every night i feel like i'm kind of good on malignant like Ears. like i just like the camp was a little too much like i i agree with you kevin and that like i think a lot of the lines and the decisions and like the zoom in on the murder weapon and all that like was all <laughs> on purpose yeah yeah but it was still it was it was just too much for me to to enjoy. Well, it was it was cool because for me, and I saw I saw someone tweet about this. Like like this is a filmmaker who's who is, I would argue, past making this type of film in their career. If that if, if that makes oh, yeah. sense, but yeah. but but to utilize the tools this filmmaker has and the ability of the budget that he's able to get because of the films that he's made, mm-hmm. there's something special about watching a guy essentially make what would come off maybe as like a first or second movie in a filmography, but make it like with, with tools that are absolutely insane to use. And like, it was almost like watching a kid just kind of play in a candy store. And he was yeah. just like, you know, playing around with all the different things that he, and to me, like the brilliance of it is that it is, it is uh, all thought out. It is all planned. It is all meant to be the way it is. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. To me, it was just, I love that it came out of nowhere. I knew nothing about it. I, I, I just popped up one day and we were talking about it on, on here. Like, oh, Juan is a brand new movie out called Malignant. Yeah. Cool. And, and then there's obviously Dario Argento uh, references and elements like that. I mean, it, it, to me, like if you haven't like seen Suspiria, like the original Suspiria, like there's so many like interesting elements here that Juan is playing with where he's paying homage to classic horror, but making a film uh, on, on a level of a filmmaker that we haven't seen make a movie like this before. It was really cool. I'm going to go one step further. Um, this is going to be on a level for me of From Dust Till Dawn. Of, yeah. I want to show it to people who have never seen it. That Dust Till Dawn's a great, a great way to put that. Dust Till Dawn... Yeah, but this is... Dust, from Dust Till Dawn is so much better written oh i mean yes i mean yes. it was tarantino it's I mean, of course but i'll grant yeah. you that but but it's still You're like i i get i get the comparison yeah. but i think because that are you saying that they're I'm, that they're on the same level in terms no, no, of no. quality i'm saying no 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 i'm saying part of the fun of going back to malignant yes. is yeah, going yeah, to be I bringing agree. someone yes. who has no idea what it is but also like yeah. the, yeah. the dust till dawn was a good reference because like like for example the bit of like uh going through 
Quentin's hand to to see a shot or something like that. Yeah. Like it's it, it's 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 goofy, but it's all done in the world. And I yeah. think that I, I would argue that from Dust Till Dawn's probably a really good tonal example of what Malignant kind of plays with in terms of like different styles of of, of horror. Because Dust Till Dawn's two movies at the end of the day. You know, it's a, it's a it's a crime thriller about two people going across the country and murdering people, and then turns into a horror film at the end of the movie. And I think yeah. Malign- Malignant just kind of goes insane <laughs> with, with its let, material. Let me ask you something. Up until the third act gets crazy, what did you think of the film? I dug it. I was See, that was the thing. I really? See, I, I, I was not... I, I, was I, in, I was in before I needed the third, the third act. act to save it. See, what's interesting is the third act was a, was almost like the sprinkles on top of the ice cream, and the sprinkles taste damn good. Like, like I, I enjoy... Like, like, I was already digging... The the um, even though you eat the sprinkles first, like it doesn't make doesn't make sense because you. But you know I what you. I mean. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of like, there was something about the third act that just complemented the whole piece, and just it just brought the piece together. And I was yeah. I was in before the shift, and like and and it's it's a very very obvious and gigantic shift this movie then takes. Um, but. It works for me. I don't know. I, I, I thought it, I thought it was a very good movie. I, I, I definitely don't. I don't look at it just as like a piece of camp. I think I thought it was a solid horror film. It's clearly made by someone that just made a studio a billion dollar superhero movie and right. said, this is what I want to do. I dare you to and tell me no. And his thing too awesome. is he could just do Aquaman movies for the next 10 years if he right. wanted to sure. and do nothing in between. He did this you know? in between just, just the yeah. play. Just, like, he literally woke up probably was like, you know what? I want to make a really cool horror film. <laughs> Just, I'm just gonna knock it out before I do Aquaman too. I mean, yeah, this movie came out of nowhere. Did you guys know Keep anything about this fresh. film until a couple weeks ago? Not really, no, no, mm. not really. Um, one film that we do know a lot about is The Eyes of Tammy Faye, uh, especially for me down here in Charlotte. I don't, I mean, Jake, you were saying the fact that you weren't that familiar with the story beforehand, yeah, I, but like, I didn't know who she was, and, and, and particularly based on having seen the film now, when I realized when it took place, I'm like, okay, it kind of makes sense why, yeah. I didn't really hear about this story. They were uh, like tabloid fodder on a on a national level to the way that like O.J. Simpson was for a, a, a period of time, especially like, mm-hmm. during his trial. Like when they were getting into all of their scandals and um, a lot of stuff that the film to me didn't get that deep into. Um, I mean, a lot of stuff happens to Jim Baker and it put the two of them uh, front and center on, on things like the National Enquirer. Not quite, you know, time and people, but like uh, but the supermarket tabloids, basically. Um, so Michael Showalter is tackling this story with Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield, and he was nice enough to come by the show uh, to sit down for a Real Blend interview. So without further ado, the Real Blend interview uh, with the eyes of Tammy Faye director Michael Showalter. Well, I have to start here, though, Michael, because it's very rare I get a chance to do this, but I'm actually based in um, beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina, where you guys ah, film. Ah, <laughs> in, in the backyard of uh, Jim and Tammy Faye. And so... I just want to know, like, what filming um, here, being able to tell this story here in this location, um, how it impacted uh, whatever prep you were doing and then just, you know, the production in, in general. I mean, it was awesome. We, you know, we, we we got a chance to go and, like, walk around Heritage. Is You know, the Her- Heritage is right over the border in South Carolina. And so we got to go see a lot of where the actual story takes place. Um, and then also just being in in... Charlotte, I mean, everybody has stories, you know, everybody of a certain age um, either knew, you know, was their fa- their parents were PTL members or they were PTL <laughs> members or they worked at 
shoe barn and, and Tammy Faye was a regular customer or, you know, Dillard's, you know, she was big, a big shopper at Dillard's. And there's like that um, Italian restaurant in the mall that she was a big, that she goes to. We actually mentioned it in the movie. Okay. Um, Is that type of stuff just invaluable as uh, when you're building a character and when you're building a world? I, I mean, I think it helps you feel, I think it helps you, you know, for, for me, I, I'm for me, I, I like, you know, to create like that. You said you're building a world, you're sort of in, in make-believe land. And the more you feel like you're immersed in that, the more lost in it you get. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, and so, I mean, it was amazing to be able to shoot the movie there in the South on these locations. And it's not just, you know, the, the, the houses or something, but it's even just the grass, the trees, the, the air, Mm -hmm. um, by the same token, having done projects, many projects where we aren't where we are, you know, I just shot a TV show that's coming out soon. That's set in New York city. We shot it in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And, but there's something exciting too about creating an environment somewhere else too. You kind of build that world somewhere else. So it, it kind of goes both ways, mm-hmm. but um, I, we had an amazing, I had an amazing time being in Charlotte and not just for the way it, you know, just creatively, but also just, it's good to, you know, it's a fun town. Like I just, you know, we, we had our routine, we got our routines figured out and all that stuff. Hmm. You know, Michael, I'm really fascinated um, in terms of filmmaking here because you're because we're going in such an interesting timeline and we're watching the characters age. I was wondering because you shoot movies non-linearly, generally speaking, and if you didn't do that here, I'd love to hear that. But I'm curious, were there days where Jessica and Andrew would be in multiple ages at one point in the day? And kind of how did you navigate that? Because she's they're both aging so much throughout the film. Yeah, Um no, but it's a great question because because of the prosthetics, they could only be in one age per day. So the amount of time it would take to make to have um, Jessica be Jessica in the 60s to then have her be Jessica in the 80s, we wouldn't have enough time to do that. Mm-hmm. So she was always in one look on any that, given day. Hmm. That probably helps emotionally. I would imagine like in, in terms of her, her character arc to be able to do it almost in order, basically kind of right. But, but we, we wouldn't, we would, she might be, I mean, we definitely tried to shoot it as much in order as possible. And that definitely did. I do think that helped. I mean, I won't, I don't know if it helped. Yes. I mean, helped is a strange word. It was interesting <laughs> to, start the movie with them falling in love mm. and to see how that affects the vibe on set, which is like, everyone's in a good mood. Everybody's having fun. Mm. Everybody's getting along. And then as the relationship starts to fall apart, all of a sudden it's kind of tense and everybody's not getting along so well. And everyone's not in such a good mood. When you have actors like Jessica and Andrew who are, you know, so committed to the work they're doing, the experience of making the movie as you're going on the journey with these characters 
there is a little bit of like, oh, this is like, we were having so much fun when they were in, when they were like just on the road preaching, like, can't we go back to that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, now they're stressed out and they're estranged and, and problems are starting. And so you kind of feel the weight of that, but that's really cool. You know, like that, that, that's, that's part of the, of the process. Well, and to that end, uh, Michael, I'd love for you to talk about this because prior to the movie finally being seen by people, I think we were, curious as to how it was going to play um like what the tone of it was going to be because i feel like with this material if you lean you know one direction or the other it could be spoof if you wanted it to be you know and so could you talk about some of the conversations you maybe had with even jessica as a producer just for the the tone you were shooting for and, and how you got to it um have you got i'm assuming you guys have seen the film yes yep yeah um uh, i mean i think i always I never, you know, I think we all, we all agreed that it could be entertaining and it could be fun and funny at times, you know, the, some of the ridiculous outfits or the song, you know, sing, the disco, disco Jesus and that kind of thing. Sure. But that we, but, but that we never, we always knew that we didn't want it to be making fun of her or mm-hmm. um, being cartoonish or campy or any of those things. I think we all wanted that to, to explore these characters as real people and to, allow them to have humanity and flaws and, and, and everything that comes with that. And so that's very much was the tone that we were attempting to achieve. Cause I'm in my forties. And to me, they're, to me, the bakers were tabloid fodder, you know, for, for so much of their existence. And it was halfway through the movie or towards the back half when my wife turned to me and she's like, I feel really bad for Tammy Faye. Like yeah. that was the sentimentality that was, that was brought forward right. in the film. She's a human being. She's different than the perception. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Michael, I was interested in asking this because you have so the makeup is so interesting in this film because it is so heavy in terms of what you have to do to the characters. And it looks so real as you're as you're watching it. But you shoot digitally. And I wonder, like when you shoot digitally uh, and you actually have aspects of different time periods, were you adding grain at all to your film or to your movie uh, to kind of give it a time period aspect? And was shooting digitally since the cameras are so HD, was that ever a concern that we would see the makeup at all because as an audience member you don't but i wondered in terms of the cameras if that affected any choices you made in terms of post-production um i'm gonna quickly answer that question because i don't have a too much i'm not so super knowledgeable on the technical side we definitely added green um and and sort of shooting the makeup was always on our minds you know how to light it how to shoot it in any given scene like how does the makeup look i mean there's if, you know, and of course, digital touch-ups also, because there's certain scenes where, you know, on the day we knew, oh, well, you can see a tiny crease there, or you can see a tiny piece of the prosthetic is like lifting up or something, but you just oh, wow. know that's going to get fixed digitally. Mm. Um, and, and you kind of go in knowing, and the digital fix is, isn't like, you know, it's not CGI. It's just a tiny little alteration gets made to hide but that's any movie just about that has prosthetics is you know you you know going in you're going to do a fair amount of digital fixing not like you not unlike you would in a fashion magazine when you're doing a photo shoot and they're doing you know touch-ups in photoshop 
But going back to your other question about um, the the spoof aspect of it and you and your wife, were you expecting it to be a, 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 a spoof and or were you hoping that it would be that? Like when you went in, were you sort of like, oh, it's Michael Showalter, it's Tammy Faye Baker. I'm kind of hoping that it'll be like making fun of them and then having to realize over the course of watching it, oh, it's not that. And I guess my question is like, at what point was it literally only until halfway through the movie before you realized that's not what it was going to be? No, that's interesting. Um, I think I might've jumped to the conclusion, not spoof, but more comedic. Um, maybe maybe because of the marketing. Like um, I, Tanya. Yeah. yeah. That's that's very like a little bit, a little bit. Well, because there's the relationship with the mom, you know, that's hinted at in the marketing and the difficulties that they were having being on the same page and almost the mom being sort of judgmental of, of Tammy Faye, that that almost passing a judgment of whatever Tammy Faye is trying to do. Like she has that attitude of like, what did you get into now? Sort of thing. Right, 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 right. But I thought very early on through the performances and even through the way that you portrayed them, um, they weren't misguided, you know, they, I thought that Jim had, he ended up having good ideas and he ended up like, they were a good pair working together for a while until they lost their way. I thought, um, so it was more grounded. It was more human than I guess I anticipated going. And again, it goes back to just what I remember about Jim and Tammy Faye. Um, you know, I, I just remember seeing them on the pages of the front page of the Inquirer, you know, and and the 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 way that she was portrayed by the media, which I think becomes an interesting commentary towards the end of your film where you talk about that and and how, you know, she almost tries to rebel against it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Michael, just a, a quick thing, because it is 2021. It's 20 years since Wet Hot American Summer. Um, and I, I just wanted to know, like, re reflections back on that on that uh, project and kind of like what you learned from that project that you could even utilize here making a film like this. Hmm. Oh, man. I mean, I didn't direct Wet Hot. Um, right. And so so much of of. I mean, I, you know, it was the first movie that I'd ever made. And so mm. I think I got to have the experience of seeing the, the filmmaking process from the beginning to the end and kind of knowing what that is, what that what all goes into that. Um, and it's obviously, you know, we taught you talk about going back to this idea of a spoof and da da da. It's like that movie really is a spoof and, and so, sort of like, even though there's some kind of sincere m heartfelt moments there, there's always that sense that we know we're making a movie. We know this is a joke um, where, and so I think if, you know, what, what's been interesting for me sort of in my career has been sort of learning how to take those, those quotation marks off the the work and mm -hmm. to not give in to that part of me that does want to kind of wink at the camera even though that's always there's always going to be a part of me that i mean i do like one of the things that i do like about this is that there is like a show within a show quality to it it's a mm -hmm. it, it it's about making television and it's about the camera this tammy faye is about the camera and is about in a lot of ways, Jim and Tammy Faye 
Baker are performing even when they're not on stage, you know, even when they're alone in their bedroom, there's a sort of a performative nature to the, what they're doing, because I think they always felt in a sense, like they were being watched. Um, but every project I do, I take something from it and bring it into the next one, whether it's something I'll do again or something I'll never repeat, you know, I'll never do that again, you know? Hmm. Um, so, but that, that one for me was, was probably just about seeing the process of making a movie from beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you talk about the fact that they were almost performing even when they were on their own, because there's a, there's a moment when she says, um, he criticizes her voice and she says, I thought you liked the Betty Boop voice. And from that moment on, I almost expected her to stop using it. Right. <laughs> I almost saw this. She was putting it on the entire time. So that's pretty fascinating to hear you say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have that quality and I've known people like this who sort of like, it's like, they're always on, they're always performing even when there's no one there right to watch right um one of the conversations that's going to come out of this film obviously is jessica's performance um and so you know even just to to maybe illustrate how far she even went um for you uh, can you is was it, it was an extremely drastic from table read to when she finally you know fully realized what her what her tammy Faye was going to be um the first time that I sort of heard her doing the voice and the character, I mean, she would sort of try it out on me in little bits and pieces. You know, I think she says this, so so like we talked so much. Um, She was very involved as a producer, not in addition to being the lead of the movie. So we were talking constantly about every aspect of the movie and she would sort of throw out, sample little hey i think she does this the first time i really heard the character was when we recorded the music so we recorded this we recorded songs for the sound for the movie in june i think we didn't shoot the movie until i don't think we started shooting the movie until early november oh wow and so we we actually i I, memory serves we recorded those songs in june Mm -hmm. And so I heard her singing in the, in the voice of the character. Um, and so then starting in, in September and October, we started working with the prosthetics and trying to fine tune the prosthetics to find a version of the, of that look that would, that felt like the character. And I think it was in that process that we really started to, I really started to see it sort of taking shape. And then um, there were, and getting the gestures, like, you know, it was really fascinating to watch it slowly come together, like seeing her in the mirror with the makeup on and kind of trying out little gestures and stuff. And, and it's this, it's a very slow process and you sort of add in little, she, you could sort of see her adding it in, building it piece by piece mm-hmm. from starting with wanting to make sure that she looked like Tammy Faye Baker. That was so important. And then um, getting the costume the right way, getting the makeup the right way, the nails, every little piece had to be right. The nervous laughter too. I love the nervous laughter. Such a brilliant choice. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I could go on forever about that. I mean, there were little things like, you know, you know, the way she would like hunch her shoulder, she would eat something. And then like she would eat, you, you, you know, she eats the Oreos. I don't know if you remember she's in bed. 
she's watching Jim on the 700 club and she's eating Oreos and she like eats the Oreos and then she sort of punches her shoulders. Like she loves the taste of food and she's sort of like punches her shoulder. I mean, she really was in that character's body. It's pretty incredible. One of the things I find interesting about this though, as you mentioned the makeup and the prosthetics is sometimes uh, a performance can be, can be put down by so much prosthetics and makeup. But in this case, the emotion is coming through it. And I think that's a really key thing to point out here because it's easy to get lost in the prosthetics and let them do the work for you. So I was curious from you as a director, uh, what conversations you have with Jessica and Andrew to make sure that they that the performance still came through, especially Jessica, because she's under so much prosthetics and makeup. What conversations do you have to make sure the emotion is coming through and not being oversaturated by the prosthetics? Yeah, that was something that we were very conscious of not wanting to bury her inside the, the prosthetics to where you you lose Jessica. You still want to feel like you're watching Jessica Chastain um, and that you can't see her underneath all of the, you know, the prosthetic. And so it was something that we were very, cog- you know, conscious of wanting to make sure that she wasn't just putting a, you know, like a, a big giant, like, you know, Freddy Krueger mask or something <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and what we ended up doing was, was taking some of it away. So the final prosthetic is sort of like, you know, we at there, there, there were some pieces that came off so that we could see more of her. Um, mm. And, and so the sort of the, the final choice of the prosthetic, which, which grows from, from when she's 19 years old until she's in her sixties, you know, was a, a combination of pieces and not the whole enchilada. Mm-hmm. And that was so that we were always sort of you're sort of it's like an optical illusion. It's like it's Jessica Chastain, but it's also Tammy Faye Baker. And you mm-hmm. kind of can't tell which one you're really looking at until the end of the movie. I think you just feel like you're looking at Tammy Faye Baker. You've, you you just sort of forget at that point that it's Jessica. Well, the final scene, which I won't reveal, is brilliant. It's really fantastic. It's a perfect way to send off uh, the character. Um, we're going to run out of time very quickly. I just want to get your opinion on this, Michael. Could something like this ever happen again, uh, Jim and Tammy Faye? And the... oh, sure. You, you think, think so? so? Oh, I think so. Yeah. What do you mean? Which 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 part of it? The being able to build an empire on the backs of, of people who you're deceiving, I guess. Oh, I mean, I feel like it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. I wish we as a society learned learned a little bit better. I mean, I, I mean, what you just said rings, doesn't that ring a bell? Building an empire on the backs of people that are being deceived? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, it, 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 it feels, unfortunately, like we've learned nothing. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's very true. It's really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on who you ask, you know, it's realistic. Um, but I mean, no, I, we're again, depending on who you ask, it doesn't seem like we're moving forward as a society. Mm-hmm. It might, it, it, in some respects feels like we're moving backwards. So um, that's, but that's just depends on who you ask. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, guys. Are you in Toronto? Are you are you up there? I'm in Toronto. Yes. Well, enjoy the festival, and I hope the film goes over huge. Thank you, and and give my regards to everyone in Charlotte. We had such a great time. Really, really enjoyed our time there. Well, thank you for bringing a production through. We're tired of losing things to Georgia, so come on back. Okay. 
I, I will. <laughs> Good. Be up on that. Thank you so much to Michael Showalter for coming by the show. The Eyes of Tammy Faye is going wide, I'm pretty sure, this Friday. Yes, Kev. Yeah, I, Sean, I was just wondering what you thought the tone of that interview was. Oh, God. Remind me not to ask that question anymore. All right, yeah. You guys are on the other side of it, so I don't think we even talked about this. Was that a bad question? No, it was actually a great question. I, I And Gabe and I were, uh, I think we were discussing this afterwards. It was cool to see, like, the interviewee turn the tables and talk to us, which is, like, you know, a really cool thing, because Sean asked a question in the interview, uh, basically what you just heard, which is, like, you know, the tone of this film, because... There's, there's a, and Sean was 100 right. There's a way that this movie could have been done where it could have been making fun of or been a spoof. And like, one thing I really enjoyed, and we'll get to the, and we'll get to this in the review, is that there's a, there's a genuine heart to Tammy Faye's character in this film, and that mm-hmm. I, you know, that and that and the human being behind the perception. So we'll dive into that. But I thought Sean's question was, your question was great. I just love that he flipped the script a little bit. Cause I, th- I think he yeah. was genuinely just curious because the people had just started seeing the movie and he was probably just yep. wondering how tonally it worked because you're hundred percent right. It could have easily been the other way around. Very so, true. Yeah. So this episode of real blend is brought to you by Marvel strike force. Marvel strike force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Dr. Doom and apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly, and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, well, we'll talk about Tammy Faye when we get later on into the show. Let's get to this week's talking points, and uh, we're going to start with our boy. Our boy Chris Nolan, Chris, as we like to call him, uh, is shop- <laughs> friend of the show, is shopping around Chris. a new a new uh, film that's going to be about Oppenheimer and the A bomb. It's a World War II film from everything we're which was mentioned in Tenet, by the way. Oppenheimer oh, yeah. was mentioned in Tenet. Like, is it is he mentioned early on when he's describing they ref- when they're describing? They refer to Oppenheimer in comparison to what the person creates in the future that's going to end the world in Tenet. So oh, they, gotcha. They, so, like, it was that when I read that he was doing an Oppenheimer film, I was like, well, this must have been boiling in his mind for a while because it's it, that name is specifically mentioned in Tenet, which is a... And I also yeah. read that um, Pattinson gave him a book about Oppenheimer at the Tenet rap party. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. You know, so we might have Pattinson to thank for and this. Then we're, and then they're saying that Killian Murphy is possibly dancing around the, the film. and like, be cool I, with that. And I saw some photos, some side-by-side of what Oppenheimer looked like and Killian, and I feel like that so could be up. a really good casting choice, to be honest. Like, I, I don't know if that's true, but, I mean, obviously, 
Nolan worked with Killian on how many of his movies? Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Inception. Yeah, Tenet. I see it. Not Tenet. I kind of see it. Yeah, you see it, right? I, I saw someone yeah. do a side by side. So. I mean, I remember. I'll never forget Killian and Dunkirk. He didn't even have a character name. It was like, it was like, it was like, it was like Shivering Man or something. Uh, I could totally see Killian playing that, like in the eyes. We'll see. I don't know if that's true. I just read that somewhere. But the point of the story is that Mr. Nolan no longer is is at Warner Brothers, where he had been doing the bulk of his film. Not all of them. No, he started at Paramount. Isn't that right? Well, uh, I know. So Memento was like I think Paramount Vantage. I believe. Insomnia, I think. Right, and oh, really? the, and what's there's a little asterisk on that, even though it's even though that is 100 percent accurate, because Interstellar did open up with Paramount domestically, but it was Warner Brothers International, so he still gotcha. made the film technically with Warner Brothers, but Paramount released it, uh, distributed it uh, domestically. So I think Insomnia is because Insomnia came right after Memento, right, Gabe? So it was everything, yeah. everything of Insomnia, yeah, forward. So the point being, he's had a relationship with this studio for a really long time, and the events of tenant i'm gonna to have to assume uh came between them essentially you know the way that warner brothers handled tenant and you know to to be fair and to play both sides had their backs against a very difficult wall in terms of saying, what, to, what is it that they did with tenant that t- was it was it tenant or was it the hbo day and date it's for the other filmmakers it's twofold i mean, I mean what again, did they do they they busted their ass to get tenant out in theaters well, it did, I mean, it was getting pushed back the way several other films were getting pushed back, and maybe I think they probably I think they would have. I'm putting words in their mouth. I think they would have preferred to hold it the way that a lot of other films have since held it. And sure. I think Nolan wanted to come out essentially, and I think they hit. I think they hit an impasse over that. The way the Hollywood Reporter article talks about, which is what we're going to get into here with the demands, the quote unquote demands that Nolan had made uh, in terms of uh, finding a new studio. It sounded like to me, and again, this is all speculation, that the HBO Max thing was like the was the was the deal breaker. Like, remember his his comments were pretty brutal about HBO Max. He called it like the worst streaming service. Um, yes. And this was all about the day and date uh, in terms of films coming out and releasing at the same date in theaters and and HBO Max. I think the tenant release structure and kind of how that all went down that obviously started. The ripple, I would argue, just based on what I've read, and then the HBO Max thing, I think was a was a big deal breaker that's what i gather from the overall scope of it but again we're reading this based on people's reports you know what i mean yeah and it's interesting that because universal doesn't have a streaming service right peacock peacock Peacock. oh i guess peacock so like for example like (laughs) i think i think boss baby 2 may have come out in theaters and peacock the same time am i right on that halloween kills is about to the same kills is about halloween kills is doing a day and date on yeah, Peacock. on Peacock. No, they're not. On yeah. Peacock. Oh, yes, they I are. did not know that. Yes, yeah. they are. Oh, that's yeah. that's bad. Why? Yeah. I saw I saw a headline that was like Halloween Kills dot 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 theaters question mark. Oh, uh, why are they doing on. that? Why 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 see why would they just give that the seventeen day treatment? Just go seventeen days exclusively in theaters, then go to then go to Peacock. Well, because because no one's heard of Peacock. They're pushing they Peacock. Start hearing of Peacock. Well, it's I, I, and to Gabe's point. We did a show. We did a uh, story on our morning show today about the. They're, you know, they're doing the whole Fresh Prince of Bel Air revival. Yeah. It's a and drama, like, right? Yeah. And they're just like, yeah, and, and and they're just coming up with crazy stuff in order to get people to 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 sign up for the streaming service. But it, but I mean, and and Sean, you can go ahead and read Nolan's terms because I don't think yeah. this will affect Nolan's movies at all. Um, for but now, this, yeah, I wanted to ask you guys these. I want to go. I want to go one at a time through these. This is. Uh, 
via the Hollywood Reporter, who is talking about Christopher Nolan going over to Universal Studios. And these are what he um, has to hold on to in order to make a deal with a studio. There's work. one I think is a little ridiculous, and I'll I'll, I'll let you get All right, to well, it. That's, so let's go one at a time. Uh, total creative control. It's fine, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's no earned I would know it. I would argue that every filmmaker should have also. <laughs> and while sure. you, while you're reading this, total creative control basically means final cut, essentially, right? And the, the, sure. es- essentially, sure. like uh, in terms of like casting well, and all. But but even I'm sure notes, there's some sort of legalese that 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 leads into. Like he might maybe he even gets final cut on trailers and like the way that it's pitched. To you know, audience, would be fun. You know, like, this would be a fun conversation outside of this. Like, which directors do we think still hold? "Quote unquote." That sounds like a bonus episode. Total creative control. <laughs> well, like we were talking about, Paul Thomas Anderson has a movie coming out. You know, in yeah, December. The title is the best. Do you know what it is? It's like it's like licorice. Um, I read it yesterday because because they're actually playing a thirty-five millimeter film print of the trailer exclusively in theaters right now. It's not online yet. It's called Licorice. I'll look it up. Hold on. I, I, That's I interesting it. because the joke was at um, in Las Vegas when we were there for. Um, CinemaCon. Licorice Pizza. That's the name of his new movie. Licorice Pizza. <laughs> Isn't that the best <laughs> title ever? It's, it's such really a good, good title. The uh, studio executive so wait, came out and he was like... Does that make him Licorice Pizza as opposed to John Favreau's Cheese Pizza? There you go. But I mean, Good so, so I, I guess I'll just use this real fast. It, there is a theater, if you if you look it up online, that is playing an exclusive 35 millimeter print of just that. This is the Bradley Cooper movie that he made just recently. Um, yeah. And they're playing a trailer on film. Only, it's, 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 a, it's a Nolan move. It sounds like a Nolan move to me. Like he's playing it only in theaters. It's cool. All right. Total you know, Nolan control. didn't actually invent celluloid, right? He just I uses know that. It. I know, but Nolan. <laughs> I'm remember, just remember I'm Nolan. Just Nolan does release uh, trailers exclusively in theaters uh, before, yeah, yeah, before no, they go I online, just, which is cool. He did for Dunkirk, didn't he? And Tenet. I oh, Tenet too. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Tenet. Uh, all right, at least a 100-day theatrical window. Perfect. That's the one where I go like. A hundred like, days, no problem. Well, just because, but the, but the, the issue, Kevin, for me no is problem. that like, like most movies just don't make money for that long. Like it's it's true. It's and you know who's to say that they're not sticking you on theater seventeen? You know that's a postage stamp size. I guess I I, I just last... feel like by the end of that agreement, they're like fudging it to make it work. But but wouldn't his argument be the Avengers movies do? Like it, movies can make money for that long. Yeah, sure. And yeah. this and this is a bit on the lower side for him in terms of budget. I think this is a reportedly a hundred million, um, which which yes. is what Dunkirk was was uh, was cost well, to make as well. Here's the next, and, and maybe this isn't as far fetched as I think, but the next one says around a hundred million dollar budget mm-hmm. and around a hundred million dollar marketing spend. Yeah. That the Which marketing spend. You that's, think? Do you think they match? You oh think the yeah. Usually, usually they usually the, they spend. Um, when you see a production budget, it's usually double is what the budget for the movie is because oh, they use the okay. same for marketing. And there are some instances where now they use even more. That's kind of like why people say these days marketing teams are really the creative forces behind films because they spend the most money and so they have yeah. the most power and okay. say and. And think about so yeah, Nol- you double is usually I think I think is normal. And Nolan's marketing is always brilliant. Like I mean, if you guys remember, remember the first trailer for Tenant? It was like I'm sorry for Dunkirk. It was like I think it was 60 seconds, and it just ended on that shot of all the soldiers looking up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and, was it great. Was, and that was like a year before the movie came out. And it, and it, I mean, the anticipation that I still find it so incredible. And this is why these terms make sense to me. 
that he opened a World War II film that wasn't even based in, in an American part of the story in summer and crushed at the <laughs> box office domestically and worldwide. Yeah. I mean, you had American audiences going to a World War II, British World War II story about yep. World War II, and it made a lot of money because Nolan's name was on it. It was that, that, right. That's why he deserves these terms. Well, here's the here's the the last few. Twenty percent of the first dollar gross. Fine. I mean, it's again, it's no a lot of money. <laughs> and a, lot. <laughs> a blackout period where the studio would not release another movie for three weeks before or three weeks after the feature. That's that, the one that, I'm shocked that he. It, that, that, well, that sounds like that's what studio. He's like saying, "Hey, this is a smarter idea." You know, that's smart business on your news own. for the yeah for the studio. Oh, yeah. why would the studio compete with itself? Well, it's smart. Well, I guess I, I saw I saw someone tweet something about this. Like, what if Universal wants to put out Despicable Me four? Yeah, like right. two weeks before. Nolan's They're movie, not going to the same audience, but they can't do that according to this. So, so, so the studio basically has a six-week window where they can't because Universal puts out a lot of movies. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and Warner Brothers probably couldn't adhere to this, I would imagine, because they have a basically a movie every two weeks or something like that. I don't know if he had this same deal at Warner Brothers. Some of this might, might have been the same, but a six-week window surrounding your film. That, yeah. to me, is like you've earned some status as a director if you can ask for something like that, sure, especially on a yeah. studio like Universal. Because, again, like Despicable Me 4 is a different audience. I saw I saw someone use this as an example. And the fact that he would have that six week area covered, it's pretty insane. Like that's I me. Mean, but he does, he does, he's, he's earned it. Like I said, with I want to see them put the uh, the Nolan Oppenheimer trailer in front of Despicable Four. All right. So I did just look up because I was curious. Because I think I think Dunkirk and Oppenheimer could be a, a pretty comparable. Because like I yeah. don't think either are like or you know. Um, so Dunkirk hit theaters on July twenty first yeah. of its year, and it's and, and it made granted it did very well opening weekend. Just that first day, it made twenty million. Its last day in theaters. Before they pulled it, where it made eight hundred three dollars, was November twenty third. Yeah. So that's that's almost that's five months. Right, July. Yeah. yeah right. Like okay. that's that's five months. So like a hundred days isn't that crazy? Yeah. I guess. Like like he he got more than that without asking for it. Well, and it was an awards movie. Like his movies are awards mm -hmm. movies, yeah, so sure. I, they get a longer run because they're trying to those audiences sure. that sort of I would imagine are going to continue to build as as hype builds around nominations. But stuff. also he's he's earned this. I mean this is this is a filmmaker who is the star of his movies. Like I I, I would argue that Nolan can open movies better than Spielberg can now. And I'm not saying that Nolan's a better filmmaker than Spielberg. I'm just saying that the Nolan name is so synonymous with box office mm -hmm. success. Dunkirk to me is the greatest example of that. And I've already said why, but I, I, you have to, that's a pretty big deal to be able to do that in the middle of a summer to open a film like that and make that much money. And like Jake just said, it was making money throughout. I mean, I saw Dunkirk six times and not in 70 millimeter IMAX. Made money through you. Just yeah, you. I, yeah. I spent so much money on Dunkirk and Interstellar. But it, that hundred days is because he knows how many times you'll go see it. Times I'll times. see it. But he it, did it for you, Kevin. Yeah. But, but I mean, this isn't that crazy. And, and I'm glad Jake brought up that example because a hundred days, and especially Dunkirk. And Gabe had a good point. Dunkirk was an awards film. That was like probably because sure. that was that was that his first best director nomination. I believe so because right. he didn't get one for Dark Knight or Interstellar. I think he got. Wait, did he get I one for Inception? Think, 
Yeah, I don't think he got. Uh, I think it's actually got a picture nomination, but not. And then Wally. Oh, Wally, how do you not give him a director nomination? Wally for won for cinematographer that year. I remember that. I do think that there's, for better or worse, people kind of give a lot of flack, and you know, we talk about Twitter as Twitter, and people are going to say what they're going to say about whatever. But the discussion around what was going on with Tenet was about how he was being vocal because he was tr- he was accepting the responsibility as a big name filmmaker to try to set a standard yeah. for the industry Help and I think theaters. that it's no accident yeah. I think that it's no accident that these terms are very public and very much mm. being covered and sure. talked about yeah, yeah. and I would imagine that this is the same sort of move where I'm not trying to you know build him up any more than he is but I think that the fact that we have a bulleted list of of what he wanted this is less of get to my level and you can get this. And this is more like a, if if we can do this model and this works, then this proves that theaters can sustain a hundred day window, that theaters can sustain a big budget and can sustain this sort of model. He's an except, he's, he's obviously is um, an exceptional filmmaker, yeah. but I think that there's more strategy to it of trying to build a very theater focused uh, idea around his films in order to, influence the industry as a whole well, and, so yeah. I, I think that's a large part of why did, we know so much about this did you movie. read the, the article did you guys read the full article yeah about how mm-hmm. like that about how he had studios come to where he lived basically it's a really incredible thing that he like he you think apple even had a chance i, I was i was wondering <laughs> apparently apple was in the running and i don't understand how because well, I, mean, I, I was get, gonna say i was gonna say like i i am kind of as with all due respect to the streamers i'm happy he landed at a traditional oh yeah. yeah yeah i'm, I'm sure he wanted to ones. but but apple apple has like Tr- tr- literally trillions of dollars in right. cash. They could have given him a billion dollars and but just said, "Here, make see, a, make a movie." Don't you want to see Nolan in that uh, montage of people going to Doom for Netflix <laughs> 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 for the To Doom fan? But, but I'd like to welcome you all to To Doom. But like, Gabe makes a really good point about the about, about the public nature of this article because I I I was wondering why we knew all this information, and it makes perfect sense because it it, it basically just again it goes to what because to me with Tenant. And if you look at Tenet, and this is something we discuss a lot on the show, I would argue that what he was doing was trying to save theaters. And I know that people were like, you know, it was, you know, Nolan doesn't care about this and that. He was just trying to keep the theaters going. He was trying to keep the employees employed. He was trying to keep the movies going, even though we were in a tough time. And I think he just that that was his mindset. And and in terms of the terms, uh, the article, basically his scripts are always super secretive. So from what the article basically says is that the heads of these studios, including Tom Rothman from Sony, apparently was a big one that was involved in, in the negotiations here as well. They all had to go out to the Hollywood Hills, read mm-hmm. the script for Oppen- his Oppenheimer film, and then essentially go through these terms. But I, it sounds like from the article that he had a relationship already with the, the head of Universal, that he was already kind of working with her, I believe, about that. So I think her name is Donna. I, I don't want to misspeak on that, but that's mm-hmm. what the article was saying. So I pitched him on uh, releasing it on my YouTube channel. But yeah. uh, I mean, um, you have the, the silver. You know, and I, and I went out to I went out to the Hollywood Hills. I read the script and <laughs> I said, I, I can offer you literally thousands of views. Yeah. And literally. you said, but you said no, because he wanted 20% of the YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that's revenue. exactly right. That's exactly right. He, and, and he wanted to keep it on my channel for a hundred days. And I was like, I can't promise you that. Yeah. He said, no, th- you don't post anything a few weeks before. <laughs> yeah, no videos for six weeks. <laughs> I was like, I was like, nah. nah, I can't. Nah, I can't do that. Uh, nah. Let's get to someone else who has uh, total creative control or for God's sakes, should uh, Mr. Steven Spielberg, who uh, just decided on a Wednesday, he was going to come out and 
decimate the competition <laughs> by dropping a, a West Side Story trailer that looks uh, unbelievable. And so I've come, I've come from not not I was never at a point where I was like I don't necessarily care for this movie, but I was like ah oh, it's Spielberg doing West Side Story that's unusual because he loves the original so much and is he going to be too lost in the weeds to now. Holy shit, give it all the Oscars. <laughs> it yeah. looks absolutely incredible. And I really, really hope it plays as well as the trailer does because it looks like Janus is shooting the daylights out of this. Um, compositions look fantastic. The cast looks perfect. Um, I, someone who, uh, Kimberly, who listens to us on a regular, did, did bring up the point of Ansel Elgort only having one line of dialogue in the trailer. But I don't know. Is it? I mean, it's it is his movie a bit, a bit. But I I kind of see it being as more as Maria's movie. I would say when I honestly when I think of West Side Story, I think of Maria. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I whenever I tell someone, "Hey, Spielberg's making West Side Story," do you, the question I always get is, "Who's playing Maria?" Yeah. Do you think the Ansel Elgort thing is because of the potential controversy surrounding him? I don't know. I didn't think of that. But again, Kimberly sort of tweeted, who listens to us, she sort of tweeted, oh, it's unusual that he only has one. And I've heard other people say, like, ooh, the campaign for that's going to be complicated because of, of his issues. I'm not as familiar with his issues. I don't I don't know the story yeah. quite as well. But I, but there have been people who have said to me immediately, like, oh, Ansel Elgort is going to be a problem. So Yeah, I mean, I've, it's interesting. I'm in the same boat as you. I remember reading about uh, he had some controversy and that was like every time the movie comes up again, it's like it gets reignited somehow. But uh, mm. aside from the controversy in terms of the film itself and the trailer, nobody nobody shoots and lights films like Kaminsky. Like mm. there is something so specifically special about the way shots look in a Spielberg film, specifically with Kaminsky as the DP. I mean, there is just it's 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 almost like dreamlike in the best film quality you could ever imagine. And we all know Spielberg shoots on film and Kaminsky obviously does as, in, in, in this as well. And there's just something special about it. The moment the trailer hit, I was immersed in the world there's just something really special about there's it's magical and I don't really know how to explain it because everyone you ask you ask the question sometimes to a filmmaker why do you shoot on film why do you shoot digitally and the word that like I remember Abrams at Force Awakens said the word magical and a lot of filmmakers have said magical every time I bring up film and that's how I feel watching a Spielberg movie there's something specifically special and magical about every single inch of his frame and you just know that it's a master I mean, I, we all agree he's the best filmmaker of all time. Like, he just he, he just has to be. Two of us. Yeah. Two of us agree. Aron <laughs> Aron Aron Aronofsky <laughs> is like yeah. right, right here, he's kind right of right, 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 right. Um, yeah. I mean, all right. I love Aronofsky. Fine. But I mean, but the, but the trailer, I'm with you, Sean. The trailer, this trailer is what is what floored me. I think, I mean, I'm telling you right now, a, there's only a few filmmakers that like make the hair on my arm stand up when I see their name come up in a trailer, like A- Steven Spielberg film or a Christopher Nolan film or a Quentin Tarantino film Scorsese. I mean, there's a, you know, there's only a, a, a handful I would argue for me and just seeing that name still, still makes me excited. It's not even that it was like right from the get go. You're right. That first shot of the, the side of the tenement and the way that she's lit on the balcony. Oh. But then the minute it comes in on her, her close up and she starts to sing I got goosebumps. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I don't even necessarily love the West Side Story song. It's, it's the composition right? of the shot. It's yeah. the lighting. Yeah. It's 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 it, there's a magic to it. You feel like you're you feel like he's captured lightning in a bottle. 
Like, there's, like every time. I, I don't know it's how so to many explain it. Keep in mind, he's yeah. been like wanting to make this movie for 30 years, and whenever I watch that trailer, I go, oh, you've been thinking about this for 30 years. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you've been playing, like, like isn't this isn't just something you've wanted to do for 30 years and then got it and went, oh, shit, how do I do this? You've been, like, yeah. planning out how you're going. Like, I guarantee you, there are some shots we saw in that trailer that have been in his head for thirty years, uh, and he's been thinking like like Sean, you shadows. pointed out a shot. Ooh, you, oh my! That well, I, when the first teaser came out, and yeah. the shadows cross each other. Still a brilliant but shot. there, but Sean, you pointed out, and and I'm going to do such a piss poor job of trying to explain it. But near the end, when you see when you see the two of them, and the sh- and and there are people moving in front of them. Yeah. yeah. Um. It's just well, while they're oh my god, it's just because he frames well, he frames Ansel uh left, at the as the people are going past, and right as your eye sort of adjusts. To where he is in the frame it yeah. goes immediately to maria and she's on the right, right and yeah. she's got the crowd going in the opposite direction and it's just it says so much beautifully in just the composition yeah let alone how fantastic the gym looks and all of it looks amazing so i, I showed the trailer to someone today at my station who is a diehard uh west side story fan in fact she's puerto rican so it's a west side story meant a lot to her Man. growing up one of our lead anchors um and i, I think she watched the trailer like with skepticism thinking like okay why are they making this movie mm-hmm. and even when she got done watching the trailer she was kind of like damn like okay like <laughs> yeah 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 like what are you what are you gonna do how can you watch that trailer and granted like we haven't seen the movie yet we don't know how the movie's gonna turn out sure but how do you watch that trailer and at least go i don't want to i don't right. want to i don't want to see it quick question so i remember um and correct me if I'm wrong, is it two or three films out of all of Spielberg's filmography that he's not worked with John Williams, right? It's I think it's Ready Player One, Yeah, and there was a few of them. I was looking at the, the credits for this. I know Leonard Bernstein did the music, obviously, for the for the movie, but I don't see Williams' name on this. Does that mean... I don't think Williams worked on right, it. Right, so I was going to ask, is there... Because according to the credits, the composer is Bernstein, so does that mean, like... All the music is just kind of like is is West Side Story music, and there's not going to be like a main like a score that's been written for the film, or is did Bernstein do the score? I mean, I, I'm 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 trying to figure all that out. I think he's going to have to rely on the original music, so I don't I don't think there's been anything original. Because Ber- um, Bernstein like, died in 1990, so but but he but he, according to this, he has the music by credit. But are you looking? Are you looking on IMDb? Let me look. I was that was on Wikipedia. Or, or where were you looking? Sorry, that was like, well, that was Wikipedia. Hold on. Yeah, it might just be that all the information on it is not out yet. That happens a lot before. But do you think there's a composer? Um, do you think there's a composer in the movie aside be. from Bernstein's music? I would like imagine ch- someone had to help arrange things. Let like I'm sure everything yeah. was re-recorded. They may have used the yeah. original because it's not going to flow on film the way it flows on stage. Right. So uh, okay, IMDb. Uh, normally, where the composer's name is, it says music by Leonard Bernstein and original the original music by. I mean, we obviously know he wrote the music, but he you know died in 1990. So yeah, I, so I wonder if there's. a I just think composer. that I think that information might be in. It, it, that inf- it's too early. That information just might just be incomplete. Hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you oh, think yeah. Williams would come in and do it, or do you think he's going to bring in like? Some someone to like. If it was Williams, I bet we would know, right? Yeah, now. I would say if it were Williams, it would be on there already. Because I mean, he in the same way yeah. that whenever they announced, you know, uh, on on Mangold's Indy Indy Five, when they announced certain people were coming back around the time they announced freaking Harrison Ford was coming back, John Williams' name was up there. Yeah. Like, oh, right. also John Williams is coming back. They're gonna like, get like, somebody like, very dependable, like James Horner, and he's gonna just, he'll knock it out of the park, and yeah. yeah, he'll he'll play the West Side Story music essentially. Yeah. But maybe mm. with like a new flair on it. So. Yeah, I thought James. Right, Ho- I thought amazing. James Horner had passed. Oh, has he? I'm yeah, he sure. passed. Yeah. He James passed Horner in 2015. 
then it won't be him. Yeah, so yeah, uh, I'm just glad you pronounced his name right. Horner is amazing. It's the only thing I got right. But I, I, I am curious if anybody listening knows. I uh, would love to know if, he, there, if there's, he went by Jim. Actually, if there's going to be a composer, I would love to know. Yeah. Like if there's going to be someone who's like putting it all together, kind of thing. Or is it, it might just be Bernstein's music. It might just be his Steve. music the entire time. Yeah, Steve, if you're listening, uh, reach out to Gabe. He's at a <laughs> yeah. We can set something up. We have yeah, a strict so... schedule, but we can maybe. Yeah. I do kind of want to know though. I do want to know because he does. He rarely, rarely works without Williams. Ra- if I, mean, I if, very rarely. If we get Spielberg, I, like, we're going to promise no interviews three weeks before, and no and interviews none after. three weeks well, after. Just... None after. And we're we're, <laughs> we're going to run the interview. Awesome. That's where we'll stop. The interview That's where we'll stop. Hundred episodes straight. That is our natural he's conclusion. The, uh, he's the what, what? What is the terminology in video games? He's like he's the big boss. He's the he's the final boss. He's yes, the final yeah. boss. He's the final yeah. boss. Uh, all right, this week in movies, I did not get a chance to see Cop Shop. Who got a chance to see Cop Shop? Jake Hamilton, take it away. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I don't know about you. I really like the plot of this movie. It's over the top western, like yeah. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Yes, but that's a great that's a great way of putting it. Basically, like an assassin is is being paid a ton of money. To knock out this guy, to kill this guy. Yeah. Uh, Gerard Butler is the assassin. Frank Grillo is the guy he's trying to kill. Frank Grillo does something very smart, which is purposefully get himself arrested to protect himself from this killer. Well, then the killer basically says, cool, I can do that too. So he gets himself arrested. Butler's and then they end yeah. up, so basically at the end of the first act, they end up in cells opposite of each other. That's clever. And then that's yeah. when shit gets crazy. It's mm-hmm. it's a very clever premise. It's Joe Carnahan, who I actually think is a very underrated director. Kevin, I think you're with me on this. The Gray is a masterpiece. Stone Cold uh, masterpiece. The Gray. The Gray is a masterpiece. The Gray is one of the greatest movies um, to come out in a long time. Oh, like genuinely. I love the great. It's Wait, so Gabe, good. you lit up. Or do you love the great too? No, I, I made a great oh, I, I made I a great laughing, pun. Yeah, I was yeah. laughing at his my, great, my great, great, great. great. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I thought this was very fun. But, but I would put this he's also directed some he directed the A team. You know, like did, let's did I know Carnahan do NARC? I, li- I like the A team. <laughs> did Carnahan do NARC? Uh, he might have. He did, um... Narc was really he good. He did Smoking Aces. Smoking uh, Aces is the one I was thinking of. Yeah. I um, thought he did Narc. But, but here's what I'll say. I, I, I enjoyed this film. I, I do, like, think it, it, like, now that we're in an age of, like, movies coming out on VOD versus theaters, I think this would be a super fun, enjoyable, like, watch at home and kick back and enjoy it with, mm-hmm. like, a, you know, like a, a, you know, a whiskey and some popcorn or something at home. Uh, I'm not sure in, in, with, in the month in the weeks that we have coming out that it's a, Hey, get in your car and drive the theater and go see it kind of movie. Kevin, what do you think? I, I, I'm going to use this opportunity because I agree with you to recommend another great Gerard Butler movie that came out last year called Greenland because yeah. I, th- I, 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 Greenland, I think Butler is like, I think I, Butler's like just quietly putting out like some cool ass flicks. Like, like yep. I, I, I love Olympus has fallen. I thought angel has fallen was solid. London has fallen was terrible. But he's doing some like he just kind of like, hits these like random films and some of them hit, some of them don't. Mm-hmm. And I like the ones that hit like like Jake's 100 percent right. Cop Shop has a lot of fun qualities to it. It's super violent, too. It's like it's, it's really crazy. So. All right. Well, um, that's out there for you guys to check out. So is Clint Eastwood's uh, Cry Macho. And I think I'm the only one who's seen Cry Macho. Is that correct? We um, have not yeah, seen, not seen it. it. Yeah. Cry Macho. And it breaks my heart to say this is a unique kind of awful it's just it's you know like we talk about clint how he'll have like a hit and and then like five duds and you're like what happened to him and then he'll come back with a with a one that just sort of knocks you out 
This is not one of those. <laughs> this is not. This is this is spectacularly bad. Um, and it's by a filmmaker who, and we were having a conversation about this before we got on, has just gotten kind of lazy. Like it's just, it just it cuts every corner possible. The script makes little sense at all. Um, Clint Eastwood. It's made by a man who clearly thinks that all of the parts of his legacy still exist. He has two love interests in this movie. He's ninety-one years old. Like they're about thirty. Like in the Mule, um, where he gives himself two three ways. So it, it worked in the. He goes, I got away with it in the Mule. I'm gonna put it into this one as Did well. Did it work too. in the and Mule? He'll keep doing it. No. Did it, it work? <laughs> no. Was that second uh, no three one... way justified, Sean? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, he also, this is the story of, he gets hired to go down into Mexico, um, to, to find the boy of a guy he works for and bring him back home. Essentially. That's the root of the story. And the reason is given is because Clint is an old kind of cowboy and the boy, the boy would love to to meet a, a cowboy and follow him home. And Dwight Yoakam actually says like, isn't that every boy's dream? And I was like, no, no, it's not. I don't imagine to hang out but with also a cowboy. Keep in mind, and this, then it this, becomes a story Isn't this based of, on a book written in the seventies? I think it is. Yeah. And it's set, it is set in the seventies, but, but still, I'm going to argue that this kid didn't want to hang out with Clint for the better part of two months as they try to get back to Texas. Um, it's just sad. It just, it wanders it has no real focus or direction at all. Um, Clint scares me, and because, and even if this is part of the performance, he looks so frail. And he, and it's, <laughs> it's one of these movies where they're constantly getting pursued by the henchmen of the people who he's trying to outrun. And Clint has like three fight scenes, <laughs> and he moves so slowly. And then they'll have like a, a an obvious cut, like fist. And then the young bad guy he's fighting falls down, clutching his face. Is the character pretty, also ninety one? Like, is the character meant to be old? Like he's Eastwood. Yes, he, maybe not that old. Um, but he in the opening scene he gets fired uh, from the ranch that he's working on, and the guy's like, "Why haven't you retired already? Like, why are you still holding on?" So, so yes, it's it's, it's, it's he's it kind of like playing with of, that idea. Okay, for sure, but maybe too much. It is not. And it made me sad because, and I tweeted this, like, I hope this isn't his last movie. He's getting to the age where it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, one day we found out that Mr. Eastwood just wasn't with us anymore. And I would hate or for this less, to be. Or less, less um, morbid. <laughs> morbid. He, stop, he stopped making but movies. See, because... That's the thing. I don't think he will. I think he's sure. literally going to keep going. I kind of love that he just wants to keep going. And like, at, at, at the end of the day, I'm not saying that, and we've had a discussion on the show before. I mean, he's a good filmmaker. I, I don't think he, I don't think he's a great filmmaker, but he's obviously a great actor. Yeah. Um, I think it's too easy for him to ever stop. Yeah, and yes. I think someone's always going to bankroll him. It's not like he's spending a ton of money. But he loves right. it. He shoots them and he loves it. Five hours a day. He just loves you know? it. I mean, he's well, how many, he's how many decades has he been on a movie set? Think about how many. I mean, oh it's it's been it's not, been not just a movie set, a set period, decades. Yeah. So I, um, I I I would argue. That him going to a movie set's probably his happy place. Like in, in sure, just in sure. terms of like Has what Has it been three quarters of a century that he's yeah. been? Yeah. I mean what what sets? what year was some? what yeah. were the for a few dollars more and Good, Bad and the Ugly and all those movies were the sixties, right? What was Good Bad well, and the Ugly? What Uglies? about when was when was uh when was, when was, when was Gunsmoke? Gunsmoke oh, yeah. and all that. He was yeah, doing Gunsmoke, yeah. Black and white television Clint was doing. Have you ever heard Tom Hanks's story about Clint Eastwood? No, but I'd like to. This guy. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to tell this very quickly, Gabe. I'm so sorry. I'm just kidding. So Tom Hanks tells a great story about Clint Eastwood because Clint Eastwood comes from the days where, like, obviously they were, like, on horses shooting westerns and stuff. And he used to hate 
whenever the directors would shout action because it would scare the horses and it kind of like throw off the beginning of the take. So Clint Eastwood used to go over to the directors and be like, hey, can you be like chill and just like let us know when it's time and, and we'll go. You're scaring the freaking horses. And he said that he still does that to this day. He goes, you'll be on set. Tom Hanks shot obviously Sully with, with Clint Eastwood. And he said, you know, you'll be normally it's like, all right, we're rolling, we're rolling, we're rolling, action, act, let's go, action. And he goes, Clint Eastwood basically just walks up to you and goes, Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and then he goes, and then like when the take's done, he just goes, all right, that's enough. Like that's, that's, that's the Clint Eastwood, which like that, that meant, I picture that in time. That is exactly what I picture when I think of like Clint Eastwood directing. Yeah. And you know what? He's, he's the, it's the quintessential polar opposite of the Tarantino conversation we've had where he's so adamant about his legacy that he won't, he needs yes. to only do oh, one more to make it that's perfect. That's an interesting, yeah. That's an interesting and, comparison. And Clint's literally just like, I just want to do it. Yeah. yeah. So so he's been I his first credit it. was in was in 1955. So he's been on sets for wow. 66 years. Yeah. I you mean, know what? amazing. Let it's the movie. Let the dude make experience. what he wants to make. And, and, That's what I say. And from Tarantino's perspective, I understand. Like like I understand where where he's coming from because he's just he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, and I think that he has a certain. Well, level he's a that, he's a. Even before he's a filmmaker, even though he's one of the greatest of all time, he's a film fanatic right. first. He, and yeah. that's the bit of him only doing 10 is he's, it's not about that everyone should do 10. It's that he wants to be the guy that only did 10 and he yeah. made 10 great movies. Like he's, he's, it's from the perspective of him as a film fan, not even mm-hmm. of him as a, necessarily a filmmaker. Yeah. If you suggest that the Clint, he'd look at you and go, huh? What? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> but don't you feel guys like, cause, cause we can, we can all say this now having, having met him and having interviewed him. Don't like whenever whenever I think of people and we've all been interviewed a lot of people, it's special that we've sat across. Oh from them. yeah, absolutely. It's, it's when you like that he's one of those people that I think like, damn, like I've sat across from him and had conversations about film that, and about mm-hmm. his like when you think about like his place in like he's he's one of the last of that generation. Yes, maybe the in terms yeah. of like that era of film. Like and he's it was one of fun. our last I actually heard. He also I loves heard... peanuts too. He's a big fan of peanuts. <laughs> I love that. I love that. If you've never seen Kevin's interview with with him for Sully, for is Sully, that correct? Yeah. <laughs> but I love that he's giving you gold. He's giving you great answers oh, yeah, as yeah. a filmmaker. He just is munching on peanuts while he does Speaking it. Speaking of Tom um, Hanks, that was Tom Hanks's room. That was Tom yeah. Hanks's junket room, and Hanks was like not did, hadn't, hadn't showed up yet. So they threw Eastwood into the room to do two quick interviews, my and uh, buddy of mine's, and he just ate peanuts the whole interview, and it was awesome. I I, I had felt zero. I had, I thought it was the coolest thing ever that he was noshing on peanuts. He's the best. All right, Blue Bayou. Um, I was not able to see Blue Bayou yet. You guys take it away. Kev, what'd you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, so we're, we're actually going to have Justin on our show, um, if it happens. He's a, a really super talented filmmaker. Um, I'm excited to talk to him because he shot this on 16mm. It's also shot on a very unique aspect ratio, which is 166 to 1, which is kind of what Robin Wright used actually for land. We had Robin Wright on. If you missed that interview, you can find it on our Real Blend podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a story. Kevin's a real company man today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Alicia Vikander is the star. Um, and Justin's character, I mean, Jake, you've seen it. He, uh, his character was legally adopted into the United States over 30 years ago. Um, he has a run in with law enforcement and is now facing deportation. Um, and the fact that that could even happen is insane. Um, and that's kind of what the story is talking about. And Alicia Vikander plays his, his wife in the film. And, you know, 
you know, she's one of the best actors working today. I mean, her accent is unbelievably great in this film. I thought Justin was, I mean, we'll talk to him about it, but cinematography wise and filmmaking wise and score wise, this film hits on all levels. I do think it's a little slow at times. I don't know if Jake agrees, but the performances are really fantastic. The filmmaking is great. It honestly brought light to an issue that I didn't know a ton about specifically what's happening to his character Antonio in this film. Um, and to me, the beauty of filmmaking, and I think you guys could agree with me, is, is that when you can learn something about life through film, that then makes you aware of something, that makes you want to learn more about it, that maybe you could do something about it. Um, mm. And I think this specific case, or his character, um, is had been in the United States for over 30 years and faces this deportation. I mean... Jake, I won't go into details, but this third act of this film is is gut wrenching. Like, it's really, really hard to watch. Um, And I thought that just performance wise, they did a really good job with it. And I'm excited to have him on because it's really cool. And we'll talk about this in the interview. He shot on 16 mil. So it's like super gritty and grainy. But sometimes when you're shooting on film, you get hair in the gate. And Mm. if you look at film as it's processed, you'll see like pieces of like lint or hair that are he kept those in the movie so if you watch the film really closely like there's specific shots where the hair in the gate he kept it in you gotta um, ask him about that oh yeah yeah and and it's really and and, and it's it just a time thing or a budget thing so it's, it's it's just raw it feels like it, it yeah. feels it's it's like a raw natural almost like documentary style where they just shot what they shot and they got what they got. And that's what you're seeing. Um, And like the whole concept of Blue Bayou, because the character, I believe, was raised near the Louisiana Bayou. Right, Jake? I think that's that's the that's the concept. Um, So the accents are are, are strong. Um, It it had some it it has some very, very intense cinematography. The character is trying to make money to try and pay for the legal fees to help his deportation. So he steals motorcycles. Um, And then the way those scenes are shot are just are just really cinematic. It's it's a it wasn't Justin in Twilight. Yeah, he's in which I did not remember him in those films. But whenever I looked him up on IMDb for to get ahead of the junket. Yeah. uh, Yeah. He's he's in all the Twilight films. I honestly um, didn't realize that he would. I mean, I I, I don't remember him in Twilight either, but I don't really know much about him as a filmmaker until I saw this mm -hmm. film. And I was really impressed just kind of visually what he did. Uh, There's a there's a certain tone to this film the way it's shot and the way it's done. The only reason I bring this up is because of the motorcycles. Do you guys remember the place beyond the pines? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was like a, you know, there was a great motorcycle uh, opener oneer in that film where Gosling rides out into like a circular pit and does this like mm-hmm. awesome. Um, and the way they did that was really cool where they like, they like, it's, it's not, it got, it's Gosling for a second, even though it's a one and then they switch it off with a stunt guy with cool camera techniques. But the way the motorcycles were shot... Which is a shame, because Gosling really should have done it. Yeah, yeah, but... but but Commit to the bit. The only reason why, and this is such a Get random... Get your ass on a... Yeah, what are we talking about? It's such, a, it's such a random thing to bring up, but the way the motorcycles were used in this film reminded me of the way it was used in Place Beyond the Pines, even though I, they're very I different films. I thought the films. same thing. I thought the same thing. But there's thing. like a feeling to the way... Who's the director of... Place Beyond the Pines. Um, Derek C. Uh, and France. Yeah, Derek yes. C. and France, uh, who also did Blue mm-hmm. Valentine, right? Yes. Um, like, but not Blue Bayou. Right, Blue Bayou. But there's nah, a... Ah, see, maybe yeah, that's, that's what good. it is. Maybe but he saw Blue Valentine. There's a rawness to the way Pines was done that reminded me of the way this was done in terms of just the, the, the immersive quality of the filmmaking. I, okay. I was very impressed with it from a filmmaking standpoint. We are um, going to be talking about the eyes of Tammy Faye, I think, a lot through the awards season because of Jessica Chastain. 
Um, I think that she's a shoe in for a nomination uh, playing Tammy Faye Baker. And she, in a way that, that's, that a lot of other people haven't recently um, uh, disappears into a role. Uh, like I just, I did not see Jessica Chastain anymore. I don't know if you guys agree with that, with how, how um, immersed she got into Completely it. Completely um, gone. But she disappears. So this Emotionally, story. Um, and not just physically, by the way, which is important to say. It's a, yes. it, it, it's like she could have easily disappeared behind the makeup. I don't mean to cut you off, but that, what you said was really important because easily this performance could have been driven by the makeup and the prosthetics. Yeah. But she comes through it all, which is which is to me the the the, the why she's amazing in the film. She conveys um, a lot of the insecurities that plagued Tammy Faye, um, and part of the reason why she relied so heavily on Jim Baker. Part of the reason why the two of them relied so heavily on religion. Uh, it's it was fascinating to to do four episodes of Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, which takes a very different approach to religion, <laughs> and then switch gears and watch The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Uh, That's interesting. You, you guys will understand that once you're able to see both, because the tones are wildly different. Um, <laughs> the only thing I'll say about the film is that I don't... I didn't leave that movie with a better understanding of why Jim and Tammy Faye Baker did all the things that they did. Uh, they essentially set up an entire... Um, organization network of uh christian televangelism and oddly enough it happened right here in charlotte north carolina uh and then as they kept continuing to i thought authentically spread the word of god i thought they believed that they were doing the right thing initially but the more they made money from it the way televangelists did at that time this is the 80s uh and into the early 1990s they got corrupt jim baker primarily got corrupt and I thought the movie did a pretty good job of just like showing you all the stuff that happened, yeah. but I don't think it show ever really Waltering. got underneath. Show, show Waltering. Eh, yeah, thank sorry. you very much. But I don't think it got be uh, below the surface too much uh, into their characters, except for probably what Chastain was able to accomplish. Jakey, where are you at yeah. with it? Yeah, it. You know, I I was hoping for a little bit more out of the story. For a, like you said, it kind of felt like someone else read the Wikipedia article about them and then tried to tell me what happened like through like like it was their interpretation so it just sort of felt like i kind of got the nuts and bolts in fact um whenever i went back and read about them afterward there were some pretty big things that i sort of went oh i'm surprised they did not put that in the movie like mm -hmm. there was some pretty you know um yeah I, th I think chastain is phenomenal and any praise she gets i think is entirely deserved um garfield i thought is fine um, you know, I, I almost kind of wonder who else maybe could have done more with that role. And in mm. turn, cause, cause those are two performances that could make each other better. Mm. And it also makes me wonder how much better Chastain could have been if she had had a better counterpart. Um, you know who I thought was phenomenal, uh, was Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, yeah, he was really Jerry Falwell. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. he was incredible. I mean, he, he's great in all the supporting roles that he takes. Yeah. I, th I thought it was perfectly fine I, I thought the movie was fine and and as i often say i feel like around this time of year we start getting all the biopics and i always say the same thing which is the performance is better than the movie mm -hmm. i it's that's that's for me for 90 percent of biopics that's the case the performance is better than the movie and that is entirely the case for me with this film i i found it surprising how much heart i had specifically for tammy faye's character because mm -hmm. And like in terms of again i'm coming from, from this from an outside perspective i didn't know a ton about the story but the perception of Tammy Faye just based on like her makeup and the and 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 the and just like the way that her care she sounded, um, I I wasn't sure like and going back going back to what Sean was saying earlier with with Showalter with how what tone they were going to be displaying here, and I just 
felt like the movie again i didn't watch a lot of the footage from back in the day the movie just showed how big of a heart tammy faye had um mm. and to me that's what i connected with the most was was the vulnerability of Tammy Faye, of Jessica Chastain's character. Um, I do think her performance is better than Garfield's. The problem with Garfield's performance is not his emotional aspect, it's the makeup. For him... Mm. Was he wearing a Spider-Man suit the whole time? Yeah, he was. In Sean's eyes, he was. <laughs> but I, 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 I thought, and I don't know if you guys felt the same way about this, I thought when I watched the movie, I believed that Chastain was Tammy Faye. But yes. as I watched Garfield, I kept thinking that's just Garfield in old makeup. There was one like he, scene in particular when he was turned to the side and I yeah. pointed to Michelle and I said, look, you can see the makeup line. Yeah. Um, and and then I realized as I was doing that in that scene, I wasn't paying attention to what he was saying. Right. Like I was yeah. I was out of it. Garfield's makeup and prosthetics. He still looks like a young guy because Garfield is he so, looks like a young guy in old man. makeup, Right. And it's, it, it's almost <laughs> yeah. like watching Johnny Knoxville and bad grandpa or something like that, even though I would argue that. that makeup. That, that, no, I no, it's. I, I would argue. Oh, that, you think the Knoxville makeup is better? I think the the, make, the Knoxville makeup on Bad Grandpa is better than Garfield's makeup <laughs> in Tammy Faye. And, and listen, but also that's not really a bad thing because the people who do the makeup for those Jackass films are brilliant. Like that, those are yeah, like yeah. those are like state of the art prosthetics. I mean, um, but I mean, the only reason I made the Bad Grandpa comparison is because Knoxville's a younger guy who was playing an older sure. man, just like just like Andrew Garfield. But in this case, Garfield's character. I saw Garfield the whole time, but Chastain, I saw Tammy Faye the whole time. Um, and to, I don't know. I, I was taken by how much I felt for Tammy Faye's character. I didn't hmm. know a ton about it. And really all my mindset was, was the perception of who they were and what they did and the legal elements that they faced. Um, so she passed away in 2007. He's still alive, right? He's still right. He is, and, and he's and, out of prison now at this point. I yeah. would have liked more about the trial and the media circus surrounding the trial. It was a I feel lot. Like that was kind of glossed over. Well, see, yeah. that's the thing. Chastain's a producer on this movie, and she didn't want to focus on that aspect of Tammy Faye's life. It was life her human. At all. She wanted to focus on... Yeah, exactly. She wanted Which to I make liked. her compassionate. I understand that. And, and I think that that works for this bit of the story, but you could tell a totally different Tammy Faye story that would get into all that controversial tabloid stuff and the court cases and what they did to the... You get a little bit of it when they start to like apologize to their followers for yeah. the things that they did. Um, but, but the movie know, makes it, it seem like Tammy Faye was kind of oblivious to what was going on in terms right, of that. I just, and I don't is know how not, accurate is that, that accurate? is. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I don't know. I, I want to clarify that because I, I come from a perspective of not knowing a ton about the story. So the movie makes it seem, and maybe I'm wrong on this, Sean, the movie makes it seem like Tammy Faye didn't know a ton about what was happening behind the scenes. And right, that, and, and that, I don't think that's accurate, Okay, so to that's, be honest with you. Okay. I, I agree with Sean. Right, well, then, that. Then, yeah. like, like, that's the way the movie And what's interesting it. is, you know, any family that essentially got bilked by them is going to watch this movie and hate her, no matter what, no matter what you know, because yep. they represent the money that they took from them. So I think you can also do a really, it would, you know, it would make a, and I, there is a documentary about it, it would make it much more interesting. Called the eyes of Tammy Faye. Yeah, that this is essentially. I think on. like the 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 mother played by the great Cherry Jones, who I love. Oh, she's I amazing. Love her so good. Um, is meant to kind of represent us and our skepticism. Yeah. Um, every step of the way, her mother, who is a, a devout Christian, basically asks like, "Is like you're getting all this money from people who are supposed to be donating to the church, mm -hmm. but you you live in a mansion? Like what? Like that." doesn't make sense to me mm -hmm. um and 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 i still don't know i i know how the movie wants me to feel about tammy faye baker 
but I don't know how I feel about Tammy Faye Baker. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm convinced. Mm-hmm. It's worth watching for Chastain alone. Absolutely. I think yes. we all definitely agree Well, with and, that. and if anything, just like, like <clears throat> you said, she's going to be a part of the conversation. Um, so... You're going to want to know what people are talking about. You're going to want to know, for God's sakes. All right, Alfre Woodard blend. We're going to celebrate the films of the acting legend. Um, Kev, why don't you start us off? Where'd you go for Alfre Alfre Woodard blend? I was in between two, um, and the only reason I, I... So originally I was thinking Primal Fear because she's the judge in that in that film, and I'll never forget we had Edward Norton on our show, and, I, and just like to... I hadn't seen that film in so long... And to revisit that, you just forget how much of a powerhouse everybody is in that movie. That's mm-hmm. probably my favorite in terms of if I'm looking at her career. But I have a per- just a personal story, which is not necessarily about her performance, just the movie itself. My dad was a big Star Trek fan growing up. Um, so I remember like my dad and I, like when I was a kid, my dad would try to get me into Star Trek and like he would lo- love to watch the series. And then when they started bringing those like the the movies out in the '90s, I know there were movies before that, but like Star Trek: First Contact was um was the was the one that I remember seeing with my dad, and I have a ticket for it, and she's in that film, and I just remember being able to interview her once and show her that ticket, and like That's it cool. meant so much to her that I still had that ticket, and mm-hmm. you know because like it's interesting because looking back on it, I haven't seen that movie since 1996 since it came out. Like I saw it with my dad in theaters at AMC Patrick Henry. And I remember interviewing her and going through my ticket stub collection. I was like, what, what do I have that, that, that Alfred was in? And that was it. And I it just, her, re, her reaction to that ticket was so, she was so blown away that I still had it. So cool. And it was, I don't know, to me, that's the only reason why that one would end up being my choice because it's such a personal thing to me that my dad and I saw that movie that I kept the ticket that I got to show it to her like, 25 years later and what it meant to what it meant to her but if i'm talking performance strictly performance i mean she has some like a great performance in primal fear i mean she her her career is incredible her filmography is incredible um well you'll see what the audience picks she's also in c the brand new show c uh she's season two of c she's in that show right now Mm -hmm. Um, i haven't watched that that's momoa right momoa it's like the basic premise is that everybody in civilization is in the new season too yeah everyone's mm-hmm. blind right everyone's lost They're like lost uh, sight and they two twins from what i understand uh that's momoa's group but i i don't think that's the case for batista who's being introduced in this i don't know okay i've, I've heard it's good though I, I also haven't seen it so i guess i'm talking yeah. out of my ass and francis you know lawrence you, is involved in that i believe if you can't see the people why didn't they get John Cena? Oh, see, that's really good. Wrong wrestler, you're right. You know, it, fair, you know what? It, it kind <laughs> of reminds me of Children of Men a little bit because it in, looks like it. In yeah, this, it does. It looks like Children of yeah, Men. Yeah, because the series basically is that the civilization is can't see, and then uh, t- uh, twins are born that have born with sight, and that becomes a whole thing, just like Children of Men, where nobody could be, you know, women couldn't give or we, we weren't having babies anymore, and then the character gets pregnant. It kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Yeah. Wait a second. I don't want to divert. Uh, but there's a news item that we missed this week. Sorry, uh, Gabe, to go completely off the rails. Did you guys see that Triplets is moving forward? Ivan Reitman is doing Triplets, but he's not doing it with Eddie Murphy now. I don't even this, know what this is the, Triplets is. This is the sequel oh, like to Twins. Twins. Like the sequel it's to Twins? It's sequel oh. to Twins, and it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito coming back. No. And they were going to find out that there was a third sibling, and the third sibling was supposed to be played by Eddie Murphy. Yeah. For years, they had Eddie Murphy on the hook. Okay, that's pretty funny, do, actually. To do this premise. That's, that's, that's a great, that's yeah. Good. Okay, but... But do, you, but do you need to see a whole movie, or can we just say the premise and that's enough or, enjoyment? Or just you know? do, like, a 30-minute short film or something like that. I, I feel Maybe. like... Maybe. 
But after the success of coming to America, uh, Murphy can't do it. And and so and for years it was Schwarzenegger, DeVito and Murphy. And so now it's uh, Tracy Morgan. And that, now I really kind of feel like with all due respect to Tracy Morgan, pull the, pull the plug on this. Well, I guess <laughs> like we don't have to. The difference there that. is that is that Eddie, Eddie Murphy does raise the profile. Eddie's like iconic in I, every way. I love yeah. Tracy Morgan, but like if you Eddie makes sense in that group because in Arnold group, and yes. Danny are like legendary actors. And like, yeah, I also feel like do you, I, I remember reading Arnold's book. Um, Arnold wrote a book a few years back. And I believe he said that he made the it's most. Called, I'll be book. <laughs> I'll be book. <laughs> I don't know why he didn't call it that. That's actually a really good idea. <laughs> I'll, be I'll be book. book. That's pretty good. <laughs> that was good. Thank you. Thank that you. was really good. Uh, that's re- I don't know why he didn't call it that. <laughs> that's a real missed opportunity. That's a really missed. Oh. But in the book, oh my god, in the show. In the book, he talks about. Um, uh, about how much money he made on twins because twins was yeah, like yeah. the first, I think, I think at that point in his career, he decided to take a little bit up front or like minimum up front and then get a percentage of the box office on the back end. Mm-hmm. And I think, I believe he said he made the most money of his career on that film on twins because he took the back end of the box office and twins was what year was twins? Cause it was twins after Terminator 90, two and all this stuff. He did not expect the show to go on a deep dive about twins. During the Alfred Word section. I I didn't mean to do that. Yes, anyway, I just had to throw that that, that news item out there. Uh, Kevin, I went with Primal Fear, so I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, go ahead. uh, It's a a great character, and, you know. Yeah, and, I mean, look, if I was picking my favorite movie that she's involved in, it's it's Captain America Civil War, but her part is so small, and so I didn't feel that was warranted. uh, A lot of people did bring up um, that that bit though it's actually an important and it's in very role. important yes yeah. it is a very important role but i feel like that would have been shortchanging her career if i went with that in that direction and you could argue for an important role in such an emotional moment that is so small it requires someone of her caliber for sure which is that's I agree with very you. very true a special piece of yes, also why Redford, redford's so good in that movie too wait yep, you're, you're, you're a winter soldier right no she oh, uh I'll... she approaches tony stark backstage uh during civil war and confronts yeah. him because oh, uh, yeah. her son died in the oh, Battle of Sokovia. I totally, yeah, you're, that's such a great scene. Oh my god! In the course of like th- but you two and a half minutes, that. she's like devastated. Yeah. No, it's, but it's honestly, great. that's a, that's, yeah. It's a great scene. It's what triggers the, the launch of the Civil War. Yeah, the, the that's Sokovia actually. Accords and the Civil War. That wouldn't have been it's a bad choice. Um, but I went with Primal Fear. Because Primal Fear to me, not only is it a great example of, um, I mean, it's a, it's a terrific story. With a terrific um, twist that, if people don't know, uh, we won't reveal it here. But it reminds me very much of... I, uh, I've been watching recently The Fugitive. I hadn't seen The Fugitive in forever. And oh, the Fugitive God. reminds me so much of uh, the types of movies that they made at that time, of which Primal Fear is one of them, in that there was no throwaway role. You just populated it with really strong character actors, right? Like, everyone in Fugitive is good. So, so even when, like, Joey Pants gets, you know, a scene... He knocks it out of the park because he's Joey Pantoliano. Primal Fear is incredible. Like it's it's mostly Ed Norton and Richard Gere, Ugh. but you get Laura Linney, you get Alfred Woodward, Alfred Woodard in these scenes, so that when she has that the that big showcase scene where yeah. she's in her uh, chambers between uh, her and Gere, um, it's it's everything. It's 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 fantastic, and so I love that she is part of that ensemble. I think the movie is fantastic, and so that's why yeah. went in that direction. Jakey, where did you where'd you go? Uh, I chose Love and Basketball. Oh, that's a, that just celebrated twenty I, years. 
I yeah, I love I love that. My sister loves that movie, so I watched that movie a lot with her growing up. It was one of her favorite movies. She had the poster on her wall, and you know, it's um, it's. I remember even when I was younger watching that with her and always thinking, oh, that's really cool that that they gave the so so basically she she plays the mother of of this character who her daughter is super into basketball and and really wants to keep playing and progress through life and her mom's just not supportive of it she's not supportive of that dream and finally there's this really great kind of come to jesus moment later in the film where she gets to explain like why she's not supporting her daughter's dreams of playing basketball and it really takes what could have been just a very two-dimensional paper thin parents character that we've seen before like the oh you're not gonna go you know uh and adds this depth and dimension uh that really makes you go i get it i i get why she is kind of knocking her like it it gives depth to to her past which justifies her actions um she she does what i think she has done many times you look at 12 years a slave where where she plays like a very small part but fleshes it out more so than most actors could ever do um, but, but I remember, um, thinking really at a, at a young age and it, I, because I love that movie too, like, wow, she took a character that could have been nothing if it were someone else and made it not just something, but something great. Yep. Yeah, absolutely agree. All right. Audience picks Dave Hammer, Michael Breen, John Palmer, and many, many others went with Star Trek first contact. Mm, uh, that's cool. Rachel Ho said love and basketball. Jake Skelly went with heart, heart and souls. Megs said clemency. Kesha George says too many to choose from, but they really liked Juanita and the consistency of her role in Luke Cage. Oh, yes. Yes. Her career has been extremely impressive for next week. (laughs) Uh, We're going to play hashtag Mike Flanagan. So let us know. No. Let us know your picks. uh, That's easy. easy. Damn you, Gabriel. That's easy. And why are we playing uh, Mike Flanagan? (laughs) Because Mike Flanagan is coming back to the show. We can announce it, right? It's in the can. We did. Yeah, it happened. It's in the can. Yeah, so we've spoken to Mike Flanagan on behalf of his Netflix show coming out uh, called Midnight Mass. I think it comes out next week, right? It starts Mm -hmm. streaming. Yes. Is Is it a seven episode dump? Yep, I think so. It's Netflix, and there, yeah, it's Netflix. The show drops. The show Midnight Mass drops on Friday. That episode will drop Friday morning. It's spoiler Um, free. It is spoiler free. We were very explicit. It's actually it's a fantastic. It's him and um, his uh, producer and longtime partner Trevor Macy, producing Mm -hmm. partner. Um, And we there are plenty of ground rules. We're kind of just following the marketing. It's a fantastic yes. conversation. The first question hear... we talk about is how difficult it is of a show to yes, talk about. For sure. The, the conversation is fantastic. And, <laughs> and we even allude to it at the end of like, they need to come back so we can talk spoilers because it's yes. that good. But... And we do reach a level of lunacy. Uh, yeah. That's that's pretty much on par with fake of trembling. Yeah, if anybody uh, yes, catch up, catch yeah. up on that. If you, haven't, if you haven't listened to that first, his first trip on yeah. the real blend. We had him on for almost two hours, by the way. If anybody listening to us for the first time, just seek that interview out. It was an hour and 52 minutes. I'll never forget it. We did it during the pandemic, which I know we're still in the pandemic. But we did it last year. Um, it was Dr. Sleep. We did it for like a Dr. Sleep. Um, yes, for his we director's cut. The director's cut. Right. Yeah. And it was, we got to a point in that interview where we were talking about the Jacob Tremblay scene, which became a, we learned about fake up Tremblay and the, and the, and the puppet they used for that scene. Um, <laughs> and that comes up again in this interview. So you'll, if you want to be like in full context with this interview, like Gabe said, yeah. listen to the first one. Listen so you can get it. Yeah. The sequel right, requires it. 
Using hashtag Mike Flanagan Blend, you can also email us at CinemaBlend. No, RealBlend at CinemaBlend.com. RealBlend at CinemaBlend.com. And that's where this week's review comes from. Or maybe it was posted to our this Apple iTunes. This was on iTunes. iTunes. This was on iTunes. Or uh, Apple Podcasts. All so. right. So, uh, Low Fidelity gives us three stars out of five and calls us uh, Altman dummies. Now, this is going back to uh, a conversation we had a long time ago. Uh, yeah, this has been in there for a while. And I don't remember why we were talking about Robert Altman. Um, but I think all three of us kind of admitted that we'd not seen his his Western, McCabe and Miss Miller. Yeah. Um, and I have since then uh, rectified that. I watched it and I thought it was terrific. Um, but Low Fidelity writes, watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller and then I'll listen to your opinion seriously. Unbelievable. And that's, that's the whole review. <laughs> that's it? Still gave us three stars. <laughs> to be yeah. fair, so, it, we pissed him off that much, but yeah. we still got three stars. So three three must stars. have liked... True. And now Sean has seen the film. Uh, yeah. Inspired myself to go to go see it. So Maybe hey. if, they're, if they're still here, give us an updated, you know, fourth, five star, add a star, add two stars. Bump us know, up. Let us know. Give us something else to watch, Low Fidelity, while you're at it. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Our next premium episode. Gabe, can you explain what we're going to be doing on this premium episode? Yes, our next premium episode um, is, I think, going to be a fun one, and it's a bit of a pilot program, is what I'm calling it. Um, we're testing to see how the format works. We're doing a tier list of Spider-Man movies, so um, people at home are probably familiar with the tier list concept. Um, we're gonna we're gonna rate Spider-Man films from. We S- have to come up with a collective answer. The collective real we'll find out. Answer. We'll find out. We'll find out. We're just going to throw ourselves into it. And we'll see where we end up. But yeah, I mean, we have to agree where we're going to put it. That's all right. Well, then the I advise game. everybody to make a Spider-Man movie tier list on your own. Yes. Yeah, uh, so yeah, play along. go check out, subscribe to premium. Yeah. Um, and there'll be links in that show's description with where you can get your own tier list to play along an image with our final um, tier list that you can look at all that kind of stuff. All right. sounds good. Uh, you can get information on the premium at cinemablend.com backslash real blend premium find the rest of us on social media at jake's takes at kevin mccarthy tv at sean underscore o'connell and at gabe kovach the show is at real blend and we will be back next week with mike flanagan and more goodness so until then do a story. story oh, oh. <laughs> all right just like first and second place guys <laughs> at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 